What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Saudi Arabia financed Live Golf and its feud with the PGA Tour has divided fans, tested players' allegiances, and sparked legal battles. Live critics have argued that Saudi Arabia is using its splashy golf events to sports wash the kingdom's human rights abuses. Phil Mickelson addressed the media about his decision to join Live Golf at a press conference in June. I don't condone human rights violations. I, I don't know how I can be any more clear. I understand your question. Um, but again, I love this game of golf. I've seen the good that it's done. And I see the opportunity for Live Golf to do a lot of good for the game throughout the world. And I'm excited to be about a part of this opportunity. And the antitrust clash between Live and the PGA is a long way from resolution. Joining me is Martin Edell, co-chair of the sports law practice at Goulston and Stores and an instructor at Columbia Law School. Set the stage for us, Marty, about the clash between the LIV and the PGA. For years, the PGA has been the principal golfing association among golf professionals. There are satellite groups such as a European tour and an Asian tour, uh, which command some attention, but the big dollars are in the PGA and the tournaments that it sponsors and tends to co-host. More recently, a Saudi wealth fund uh, formed a new tour called LIV or L-I-V, in which it paid, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars to particular golfers to join the tour and give it publicity. The PGA found this to be an existential threat to the PGA's existence and initially banned golfers who signed up for the Live Tour from participating in the PGA Tour and then was able to talk to some of its associates, such as the Masters Committee. The PGA does not run the Masters event. That's run by the Masters Group uh, in Georgia about also banning live golfers, live licensed golfers from participating in the Masters. This came to a head, I guess it was in August of this year, where a number of the golfers who signed up for the Live Tour, Phil Nicholson, Brian DeChambro, and several others, commenced an action in in federal court in California to enjoin the PGA from its practices using the cudgel of the United States antitrust laws and sought a preliminary injunction. The court in August denied the live golfers the preliminary injunction, finding plausibly on the record, I might add, that there was no irreparable harm to those golfers for not participating in, or from being barred from participating in the PGA Tour because they were making more than enough money from the Live Tour to more than compensate them for potential loss of earnings from the PGA Tour. 
Since that time, most of the individual golfers have dropped out of the lawsuit, including Mickelson. The Live Tour itself has joined in the lawsuit, and it's tending now to become a battle of the PGA against the Live Tour. Possibly the Saudi Wealth Fund will be drawn into it as a direct party, but that's not clear yet. And it's challenging the rules, whether the PGA is a monopoly, which dictates membership and the ability to participate. And going against that is whether or not it's reasonable what the PGA does. One of the objections to the Live Tour is that it's under the auspices, sponsored, however you want to say it, by the Saudis. And there is a demonstrated history of human rights abuses by Saudi Arabia. That doesn't enter into the legal analysis, does it? The background of you know where the money comes from? Well, it does in the following way, June. So most of the antitrust law claims right now are adjudicated under what's called a rule of reason. That is, you balance the pro-competitive benefits against the anti-competitive harm uh, in a relevant market and determine whether or not there's a violation of the antitrust laws. So if the PGA successfully can claim that they will lose viewers, they will lose sponsors by enabling golfers who participate in a tour that is sponsored by Saudi Arabia, that may become a reasonable reason for them to bar those golfers who have signed up for the Live Tour from participating. As an antitrust matter, the fact that this is a foreign-owned enterprise does that enter into it? Probably not, because they're looking at the effect in the United States. If it were solely on foreign ground, that would be a reasonable argument for why it should not be regarded. But since you're looking at effects in the United States or impact in the United States, uh, the fact that you have a Saudi wealth fund funding this uh, is probably not that significant a factor. Aren't you allowed to have membership organizations with rules and regulations for the people who choose to be members? Sure you can, but the question becomes how exclusionary is that for others who may have otherwise an ability to participate? We have private clubs throughout America. Having one doesn't make it an antitrust violation, but If you had a single club which paid the ways or led to opportunities for compensation for all, let's say, members of the Elks, then you would have the ability to claim that that may be exclusionary if it had rules which precluded others from participating in a reasonable way. And that's the argument here. Is the PGA sufficiently large that it becomes the only real entity for professional golfers? Are professional golfers a relevant market in the United States? Are they being excluded from participating unreasonably in what's going on? Those are some of the issues that the court's going to have to going to have to confront. Changing topics, but still staying on sports. The Super Bowl is coming up, so let's take a legal look at football and other team sports. The racial discrimination lawsuit by Brian Flores 
after he was fired as head coach of the Miami Dolphins is sort of is sort of a shadow over the season. What legal issues do you see regarding discrimination, both racial and gender, in professional team sports? There have been three real problems that have surfaced in 2022, which are likely to recur. One is in hiring. So you had Mr. Flores in February of 2022 file a complaint against the NFL National Football League for discrimination and hiring of head coaches. And I think it was uh, offensive coordinators and quarterback coaches because he was not promoted. And he claimed that the failure to promote him was because he was a victim of discrimination. Over the last couple of years, the NFL has not hired very many people of color as head coaches. And I'm, I'm going to focus on the head coaches rather than going to all the other type of coaching positions. I think they're up to two or three out of 32. By contrast, you look at the NBA, which out of 30 teams, I believe now has either 15 or 16 head coaches who are people of color, which reflect more the demographics of who the players are. 57.5% of the NFL players are black athletes. I think it gets up to 70% as people of color. In the NBA, it's closer to 80%. Why wouldn't there be competent candidates for head coaches who are people of color? And that's been a recurring problem. The NFL adopted something called the Rooney Rule back at the turn of this particular century, which mandated that teams had to interview or consider for interviews people of color as candidates for head coaching positions. But it didn't mandate that teams had to hire people of color. And it just seems anomalous in this day and age as to why there aren't more candidates who are people of color who are being hired. They're certainly competent out there, but they're not being hired for the most part. That's one thread. A second thread is gender discrimination which continues to rear its ugly head in sports in two ways. One is the lack of hiring of women in positions of authority, president, general manager, coaching positions. And second is discrimination and harassment, frankly, by owners. So we saw the examples this past year of uh, Mr. Snyder and the commanders in D.C., and the Phoenix Suns, both of which were the subject of fairly detailed reports which found discrimination in the back office by the owners against employees. The third thread, of course, is statements, statements by athletes. So we had Kyrie Irving's statement endorsing a movie which had anti-Semitic, I was going to say connotations, but that would probably be understated. It was an anti-Semitic tracked. And he was severely disciplined by the Nets. And at the end agreed, he couldn't come back until he made some reparation in that regard. And he did, including undergoing some training uh, and some sensitivity training, which is frankly helpful for lots of people, not only athletes. But those are the three threads, uh, racial and gender discrimination in professional sports. Those seem like systemic issues that are deep-rooted and have been around for a long time. How do you deal with that? Well, I think transparency is a great way of resolving matters. So the more these things get aired by the media, by people 
who become whistleblowers, the more it's likely to come to light and cause a change in actions. We don't see a lot of statements by athletes that are discriminatory on the basis of gender, race, religion. There's an occasional one. So the Kyrie Irving situation tends to be more of a one-off. And I think the leagues have made great strides in that regard for educating their players that there are problems out there. Hiring is a problem which has gone on for a long, long time. You know, we've seen that positive action towards redressing discrimination in hiring has occurred, particularly by the NBA, but we also see it in Major League Baseball to some extent. For some reason, which I can't figure out, football lags well behind that. And maybe bringing to the fore situations like Mr. Flores's case will assist the owners there in understanding what the nature of the problem is. Boycotts are an effective means of convincing the owners that there is a problem. There are some companies out there, corporate sponsors, who will not support teams that discriminate or they perceive don't have positive workplace models in in effect to remediate against discrimination or mitigate against discrimination. You know, the only way to deal with that You can yell and scream, but that probably won't change it much. But if owners feel this will have a pocketbook effect, they may be more receptive to change. And we saw that with the examples of particularly with the Suns, the owner put his share on the market rather than continuing to deal with it. So it will be purchased by a new group. Not clear what the outcome will be with the commanders yet, although Mr. Snyder has indicated that he may put it up. He may put his shares up for sale. I've been talking to Martin Edel of Goulston & Stores. Marty, let's turn to a different sports law topic. For more than a century, plaques and trophies were the only things that college athletes could earn from their achievements on the field and on the court. That changed in 2021 after a Supreme Court decision against the NCAA. Now student athletes have the right to make money from their names, images, and likenesses. So how is it working out? It depends on whom you talk to. So, Marty, star college athletes no longer have to leave school and become a professional to make a living. How's it working out? On NIL, the name, image, and likeness, a number of athletes have been able to license to third parties, such as advertisers or sponsors, uh, the use of their name, image, and likeness, and make several hundred thousand dollars per year. This is the rare athlete. It is the well-known athlete, the highly publicized athlete nationwide, such as the quarterback of Alabama or the quarterback of Georgia, who has a fair amount of name recognition throughout the country and can license his name, image, or likeness to national sponsors for significant amounts. There is some issue with alumni trying to pay athletes by licensing their name, image, and likeness for less than full value. And that's an issue that the NCAA still has to address. It's far from clear what the outcome will be there. A recent New York Times article pointed out that advertisers and boosters who previously supported college athletics by giving money to the athletic department and those payments helped to subsidize other teams on campus are now giving the money to the individual athlete. And so 
those other less popular team sports on campus are not getting the dollars they used to. Right. And that has gone on for time immemorial. So take a classic example. Your crew team makes very little impact on alumni for trying to license athletes, whereas your monetary sports such as football and basketball will have more recognition among alumni. What's happening in this new environment, that is, where athletes can get compensated for licensing their name, image, and likeness, is we are starting to see the implementation of what's called collectives. This is not a socialist term, uh, but what collectives are, are they're groups generally of alumni who get together and try to market the athletes as well as the schools. And what do I mean by that? So if a group of athletes want to appear in an ad, the ad will be worth much more to the sponsor if the athletes could be wearing their, let's say, football jersey or their basketball jersey or some recognition factor for the school, such as a cap. To do that, the sponsor needs the approval of the school as well as the athletes. So it's a means of trying to tie together all the various elements schools, athletes, boosters, uh, and sponsors into one package. And that's starting to gain a fair amount of play among schools as a means for getting more money for the school as well as for the athletes. Let's talk about the appointment of former Massachusetts Governor Baker to head the NCAA. What kind of things will he be confronting during his tenure? So, great question. As the general wisdom seems to hold, the NCAA made an inspired choice in hiring Governor, former Governor Baker as president because of his ability, at least as governor, to reach across the aisle and get some significant bills passed for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, with both Democratic and Republican support. Why that becomes important here is the NCAA is facing a crisis in a number of areas where they are looking for federal legislation as sort of a panacea for their ills. So, for instance, one area is, can we create a uniform set of name, image, and likeness laws? Right now, name, image, and likeness is left to each state, and we have variations among the 30-plus states that have enacted NIL laws, some of them significant in how they affect athletes and how they affect the schools and in what they mean for recruiting. A second area that the governor is likely to face is the issue as to whether student athletes are employees. That can have a huge impact on colleges' budgets. Think, for example, if all of a sudden you have a thousand intercollegiate athletes at school and you have to pay them all a minimum wage, and let's say the minimum wage is fifteen or twenty dollars per hour in that particular state. Well, if you're paying them for thousands of hours per semester, all of a sudden the school is going to have a budget hit of upwards of ten million dollars annually. That's enormous. So what can the NCAA do either to delay the 
uh, calling of student athletes as employees or have a reasonable rollout for that. And how did that come into play? Well, the National Labor Relations Board is looking for a test case in which to hold that student athletes are subject to the terms of the National Labor Relations Act. And this has been announced by the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board. Again, disparate impact because the National Labor Relations Act doesn't apply to state governments that have expressly said, no, they're not going to permit unions. So you may find, let's take Alabama, a right to work state. The University of Alabama may not be subject to the strictures of the National Labor Relations Act if a court finds that student-athletes are subject to the National Labor Relations Act because Alabama has opted out. This would create a difference between Alabama and a private university being able to recruit and having more funds at Alabama to recruit athletes to Alabama. A second impact area is there is a thread of cases Uh, Right now, there's one in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in which student athletes have been held to be employees for purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act. This could mean, if it's upheld by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, that student athletes must be paid a minimum wage. So lots of moving pieces there for which the governor may look for national legislation to exempt the NCAA such as baseball has an exemption from the antitrust laws. The governor may look for an exemption for college and university athletes from the strictures of the National Labor Relations Act and perhaps the antitrust laws. A third area facing the governor is gender discrimination. There have been now two reports commissioned by the NCAA which have found systemic gender discrimination in NCAA tournaments. And the NCAA is doing a reasonable job in trying to clean up what's going on there. But the NCAA doesn't have the ability to make rules for the individual colleges and universities. What are they doing to eliminate or mitigate uh, against gender discrimination? And not a lot right now is the answer. Most think it's the other school that may discriminate, but not them. So those, I think, are three principal hurdles. A fourth will be sports gambling, and a fifth is concussion injury. So with college athletes getting paid and possibly being members of unions and getting paid, that it sort of takes the emphasis off what you think that university education is supposed to be. So I think that's a great point, and the answer is decided yes. And to me, at least, this gives colleges and universities a unique ability to set back and reassess what they want to be for their students. Do they want to be academic institutions where they will give an education to those who come there? Or do they want to be principally known as basketball and football powers and perhaps even a minor league for those professional leagues? Will schools do that? I don't know. Many schools are losing money regularly in their football and basketball programs, but it's a big draw for alumni. So they have to balance all those factors in determining, do they want to be really an academic institution or do they want to be a sports power? Or is there some way of balancing and coming out with some middle ground? Since the Supreme Court's decision that held federal restrictions on state gambling laws unconstitutional, states have followed different paths. 
31 states now allow sports betting, while others continue to hold that gambling, such as FanDuel and DraftKings, violate their criminal laws and constitutions. A Pew poll last year found that one in five U.S. adults said they'd personally bet money on sports in some way in the last year. I've been talking to Martin Udell of Goulston Stores. It seems like gambling and sports, it's all over. Are there any restrictions on gambling and sports at this point? So the answer is there are, but they're rapidly disappearing. So the thread here is that gambling has been a real issue for professional and college sports because of the possibility of things like fixing games. And most gambling is done under the table so that officials are not as able to detect gambling. And this goes back to the 1951 tournaments, the NCAA tournaments, the NIC tournaments, where there was fixing of games. And so most states have outlawed gambling, not as a result of the sports dynamic to it, but because most states saw that gambling was not a means socially that they wanted to further their image. That all changed as sports gambling became lucrative. So the Supreme Court said back in 2019 that states can have gambling as long as the state permits it. There would not be a federal prohibition, at least not constitutionally could it exist. So a number of states looked into this, and you have the advent now of FanDuel and DraftKings, and saw that these were real opportunities to take in millions, if not tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue from taxing the winnings of what goes on or taxing the revenues of the company that licenses the particular sports betting game. So we have about 30 states that have laws that permit FanDuel and DraftKings to exist. They do this by carving out what FanDuel and DraftKings do from normal gambling. Gambling is still a violation of most states' criminal laws. In the case of New York, it was also a violation of the New York State Constitution. So we had this anomalous result a few years ago where a state appellate court held the legislature could not exempt FanDuel and DraftKings because the legislature could not change the Constitution. But it could change the state criminal law. So, in effect, what FanDuel and DraftKings were doing at that point violated the Constitution of New York State, but there was no remedy because the legislature had changed the gambling laws so that there wouldn't be a criminal violation. It sounds somewhat crazy. I think the New York Court of Appeals got it right that it was crazy and then had a decision saying that what FanDuel and DraftKings do is really not within the scope of gambling within the meaning of the state constitution. So now FanDuel and DraftKings can operate in New York state without a constitutional or state gambling violation. And a number of states have gone in that direction as well. But there are still some states in the, some states, particularly in the deep South and in the Midwest for which gambling is not permitted. And they see FanDuel and DraftKings as being gambling and not a game of skill. Thanks so much, Marty, for that tour de force on sports law. That's Martin Dell, co-chair of the sports law practice at Goulston and Stores. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. A trial in federal court in Brooklyn is part of a long-running investigation of corruption in international soccer that dates back nearly a decade and has swept up top officials. Federal prosecutors allege that two former Fox executives paid millions of dollars in bribes to win lucrative broadcast rights to soccer tournaments. The system of bribery lasted for years through generations of leaders who took money in exchange for secret, no-bid, below-market contracts for valuable TV rights, according to the prosecution. The defendants claim they're being framed and retaliated against by their one-time business partner, who's the state's star witness. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's covering the trial. The prosecution says that this is not just about one case of bribery, but it's a system of bribery? Yeah, this is the second trial involving FIFA, the governing body for international soccer. And in 2015, people may remember there was this incredible raid on a five-star hotel in Switzerland where all these uh, FIFA bosses were having their international meeting and uh, law enforcement swept in and arrested them. It set off a series of prosecutions led by the U.S. involving uh, the FIFA bribery scheme. And in that part of the case, soccer bosses for local countries, they ran the soccer for their federations for their country, were accused of taking bribes. And altogether, at least 27 people have publicly pleaded guilty in the the investigation in the U.S. Four companies have pled guilty. And we also had a trial in 2017 that resulted in the conviction of two former soccer officials from South American countries. So now we are having the second part of the case, which now involves not the people who were accepting the bribes, but the people who were paying the bribes. This now features, allegedly, Fox Sports Executives. It was a unit of Fox, 21st Century Fox Sports, that are accused of paying bribes to soccer bosses to get access to great broadcasting rights, which are very lucrative to be able to broadcast the signal. And everyone knows about the World Cup and how popular soccer is in, in this around the world. Fox is not on trial in all this? No, Fox is not on trial. Two former executives under the 21st Century Fox banner are accused. Uh, Their names are Hernan Lopez and Carlos Martinez, and they're accused of a wire fraud conspiracy and a money laundering conspiracy for allegedly trying to promote Fox's interest to get... uh, access to broadcast rights, including 2018 and 2022 World Cup tournaments. Why didn't the prosecution charge Fox as well? If they got all this money, they got it from somewhere. 
I mean, the individuals who are the ones that allegedly corrupted the process. So they are the individuals, not the company. People remember a uh, recent trial of the Trump organization, right? The two entities, the Trump, uh, Trump Corporation and Trump Payroll Corporation. They were the only two charged. And everyone was shaking their heads and saying, what happened to the bosses of the Trump org? that didn't go on trial. We did only got the CFO on that case, Alan Weisselberg, who pled guilty. Well, this case involves the two executives who allegedly paid those bribes. So they're on trial. And there's also a company called Full Play, which is accused of paying bribes. That's the third defendant on trial in the second FIFA trial. They're accused of helping facilitate the bribes for broadcast rights. The defense, some of the defense is revenge they built their case on the back of a bad guy. Tell me about that. Yeah, the government star witness has been on the stand, and his name is Alejandro Gorzaco, and he's an Argentine businessman who used to be a Citigroup banker and did uh, venture capital deals in New York. And he went home to Argentina and started working for Homeland. He did deals down there for the bank and then eventually joined a uh, Latin American sports marketing company called Torneos. And it turns out that the man he started working for and working with was allegedly paying bribes to soccer bosses for broadcast rights. And that's how he got embroiled in the process after his former colleague at Torneos became ill and died. So he's on the stand. And the defense is making hay of him because they allege that he's only basically implicating the two defendants from Fox as revenge. They claim he's the mastermind of the soccer bribery scheme, not them. They're just victims, and he's only implicating them. He's quite a witness. He has a fantastic memory, as very vivid in his recollections as well as thorough in his descriptions of bribes and discussions. And he was the star witness in the last trial as well? Yeah, he was. He was the subject of a very dramatic incident that happened at the last trial. There were three soccer bosses from Latin American, and these three defendants represented uh, South American soccer conferences, and they were accused of accepting the bribe. And Alejandro Bersaco was the guy that was allegedly paying the bribe through his company. And he described, uh, suddenly he's on the stand, and it was a very dramatic story because he was at the, the hotel in Switzerland when they had the raid, where they arrested everybody. But he missed the early morning breakfast. I think it sounded like he had a meeting outside of the hotel, and he arrives to the hotel dining room to find chaos and wives crying and sobbing that their husbands have been carried away. He eventually contacts U.S. law enforcement and surrenders and began secretly cooperating. So it's quite a dramatic story of the man who like got away and then became the secret government cooperator. He's up on the stand at the last trial, and he was very emotional because apparently there were alleged death threats the U.S. government claimed had happened against him and his family, and that his life had been threatened, as, as well as those in his family in South America that remained there. And one of the soccer bosses on trial he said, had made a gesture that looked like slitting his throat, like your, your head's going to get cut off or they're going to slit your throat. And it was a gesture later, the defense lawyer claimed that if his client had itchy skin and, and that it hadn't been a threat. It was only scratching his neck. 
the judge had a hearing about it, and the defendant was was uh, chastised by the judge. So he comes back as a second round as a witness, and he's pretty colorful. He told us all about the chaos that ensued after two soccer bosses. He, had, he alleges that he did take bribes with these two Fox executives. And he was asked, did there come a time when you became basically cautious about paying these bribes? And he said, yes. And around December 2010, what happened then? Well, apparently, he said two of the FIFA officials that are part of the governing body got caught on camera accepting bribes on a secretly recorded camera. And articles were written about that. And after that happened, he said there was an uproar. And then the FIFA executives held their annual meeting or their meeting to decide who was going to be named the host country for the 2018 World Cup and the 2022 World Cup. And uh, according to his telling, uh, everyone had expected the U.S. or another country to win, anybody but basically Qatar, which was eventually selected as the host country. And he said, here it was, World Cup was supposed to be, they had no stadium when the U.S. had held the World Cup in uh, 94, they had had the greatest record attendance ever. And they had stadiums and capability and infrastructure. And here, Qatar was in the middle of the desert with the 120 degrees in June and July of 2022. And they had, you know, no infrastructure. Um, He said it was a bit of a joke. And he said it was like writing in the sky and in the clouds, we are open for bribes that the soccer officials were broadcasting. So it made him nervous, and he told his alleged co-conspirators that we have to be careful. It sounds from the quotations that you have in your story that he speaks very well and has great descriptive powers. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, a good storyteller. The defense has just railed at him, and they basically made him sound like a sociopath and their opening statements. They've assailed his credibility, his reliability. He is, has shown what is rare in the courtroom of I've seen of a cooperator that appears to have a tremendous amount of remorse for his crime. Many people, when they describe in their testimony, they minimize their role and basically blame everyone else. That's not his telling. His account is a kind of a, a fulsome rendition of this is what I did and I did this and this and this but by the way this is what I said to him and this is what he said to me and it's pretty thorough um he was asked about there are these offshore vehicles that are basically passed through entities through which bribes were being paid and the prosecutor was asking oh what's this all about he goes oh it didn't do anything at all it didn't do anything else but collect money and pay bribes and, and, and plus, he has the capacity. Because he's passionate about soccer, he's very knowledgeable about what's entailed. He's Argentine. He's a great loyalty to Argentina, very proud of the country, loves soccer. And yet you can see as a former banker, he's got, you know, an extraordinary capacity to describe all these financial transactions. And maybe a little much for the jury <laughs> who are, you know, everyday folks. What kind of a deal did he make? He pled guilty to racketeering and a host of crimes, so he faces some serious time. So he's going to have to throw himself on the mercy of the court to see if he gets away, you know, he gets a lenient sentence. Do you know which judge is going to, you know, handle his sentence? Yeah, it's, it's the same judge who handled the case of the three 
uh, soccer bosses that got convicted in the 2017 trial. And one of them is still in prison. What else does the prosecution have? He's the star witness. What other kind yeah, of evidence? I mean, have, it's a very dense case compared to the other one, which was, you know, you can tell a tale of these guys taking the bribes. And it's very colorful with secret meetings at gas stations and backroom conversations where the soccer bosses, you know, one of them, uh, Julio Grondona, which, who was a, you know, a soccer official in Argentina. He was the guy that, you know, was basically like the godfather. And he would require people to come and kiss his ring, basically. So that's kind of got the mafia kind of colorful background to it. This case is denser because it's more about the business of actually paying the bribe through these entities for a company. So it's a lot more, you know, the other trial had great stories about private debts and guys, you know, having stacks of cash, you know, millions of dollars in cash, you know, when we had photographs of all this great stuff, the way these guys live high on, high on the hog with soccer. This is much denser story and trial about the business of the fraud. So there's a lot of papers, documents. Yeah, there's a lot of contracts, and this is a this is a shell corporation. And what is the shell corporation doing? Well, it's saying it's a transaction, but it's really just papering up an illicit bribe. So, besides saying that this guy's out for revenge, what else do you see the defense coming up with? Basically, the defense is arguing that these transactions were all are orchestrated and conducted by Berzacco, and they really aren't responsible. And that he's such a sophisticated guy, he hid the scheme from them, and they were just regular business partners. And poor 21st century Fox Sports in Latin America was being defrauded by Berzacco. So the two former Fox executives and the sports marketing firm are on trial but I understand that each is being represented by more than one attorney. Well, I counted at least 22 lawyers inside the courtroom well this morning. Really? So there are a lot of lawyers. <laughs> yeah. There are three defendants, and each of them has about six lawyers apiece. So it's going to be with lawyering like that, with lots of money to spend, there's going to be anything is going to be tried. You know, and everyone's going to get their shot at trying to go after Berzaco and, you know, try to eviscerate him on cross-examination. That's scary, that many lawyers in one trial. Yeah, I, I, it's stunning. It's stunning. They had to reconfigure the courtroom seating just to fit them all. Is there a chance that any of the defendants will take the stand? I don't think so. <laughs> if I were them, I wouldn't. What was the highlight of Berzaco's testimony so far? Well, in the last trial, Berzacco described these wild scenes of being in the hotel and money being exchanged. And he said that one of the soccer officials that he was close with, the guy Julio Grondona, had complained to him that basically he claimed he was promised between 50 and 80 million from Qatar and that he had been shortchanged. So he was complaining to Berzacco that each of the soccer, the FIFA officials that had voted for Qatar 
were paid more than a million dollars from Qatar Sports Authorities to award the country the World Cup. And this one boss that was the boss of all bosses, that was really the kingpin that ran FIFA, he was complaining that he was supposed to get more and he felt someone had come out. Here are the good quotes. He said, um, the risk was much greater after December 2010. There was a general surprise, meaning the general surprise that Cutter had won, and I think substantially changed the risk of paying bribes in the soccer world. He told the jury, many expected the U.S. or another country to be selected. Countries like Japan, Australia had been in the running to host the 2022 World Cup. And uh, Bill Clinton was part of the delegation that was sent to present the U.S. as a potential World Cup. And he said everyone was stunned. And the reason the U.S. was was thought to be a favorite was because attendance records had been broken when the country hosted the 1994 World Cup. And he goes, how can a country compete with no stadiums in the middle of the desert and 120 degrees Fahrenheit? We knew last time, but now we got a little more color. And the color for this one was the reason why it came up in this trial was because he said that the, the controversy that erupted first with the ba- people getting bags of money on camera, ca- caught on camera, those two soccer FIFA officials were not allowed to vote on whether or not Qatar and Russia, because it also involved the tw- awarding of the 2018 World Cup host country. So Russia got 2018, and then suddenly, which a break from tradition, they awarded the second, immediate second country instead of a lapse of time to pass. They did it in the same day within minutes apart, which was also a break from tradition. And then suddenly the next country that's announced is 2022 host country is Qatar. So, I mean, we knew the last time when we described that each of these guys, these FIFA bosses got a million dollar cut for doing this. Um, and then he heard his friend complain, oh, where I didn't get my either 50 or $80 million that I've been promised by Qatar. The amount of bribery alleged here is just astonishing. Thanks so much, Patty. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.